You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hello, Jeremy. Today is October 28th, 2021, and this is episode 144 of Lighthearted. We'll be listening to part three of a three-part interview with Irish lighthouse keeper and author Gerald Butler. We'll get to that shortly, but first we're going to hear a conversation with New Hampshire Seacoast artist Debbie Mueller. Let's tell everyone about Debbie Mueller. Debbie Mueller is an award-winning oil painter whose light-filled, bold, and contemporary paintings have rapidly gained prominence in the community of New England artists since she began to paint in 2016. Her work is carried by several fine art galleries, and she has exhibited nationally in juried shows. Debbie's work is available through the Mast Cove Gallery in Kennebunkport, Maine, Kennedy Gallery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and the Cortile Gallery in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Debbie's solo show, Beacon, at the Kennedy Gallery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, will feature original oil paintings of more than 20 different New England lighthouses. The show's title, Beacon, is in recognition of the function of our lighthouses and how they also metaphorically represent guidance, illumination, clarity, and protection. 20% of the proceeds from the show will be donated to the American Lighthouse Foundation, an organization that works to preserve 16 lighthouses in New England. The show opens on November 5th. I spoke with Debbie Mueller recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking this afternoon with artist Debbie Mueller, uh, who has an exciting art show opening very soon right here in Portsmouth, opening next week here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you so much for being with me today, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. So I want to talk about your show of lighthouse paintings, of course. But first, I thought I'd ask you a little bit about yourself. You've had a kind of an unconventional path to becoming an artist. Yeah. So until about six years ago, um, if you asked me about my art abilities, I would tell you that I was extremely artistically challenged. I would draw stick figures and just, you know, really didn't think that I had any ability to create um, anything beautiful with drawing or painting or anything like that. I always was interested in crafting. I always enjoyed creating things. I did some pottery and some mosaics and took a photography class. Um, but I figured once I put an implement in my hand, I was going to ruin whatever it was. And then on a vacation visiting my parents, we had a day that was not a good day. It was uh, raining, so we couldn't go outside and everybody was kind of grumpy. And my mother, who's been a hobby artist her whole life, said, well, I have some paint here. Do you want to paint? And my first thought was, no, why would I want to do that? But I didn't have anything better to do. So I said, yes. And I will not tell you that I created a beautiful painting. I did not. But I recognized immediately after creating that first painting that I loved the way it made me feel. And so when we got home, I went out to Michael's and I bought some stuff and started painting in some of my spare time. And probably within just a few months, I was hooked and I felt a complete commitment to becoming the best painter I possibly could be. So through a lot of hard work and through some wonderful teachers and exposure, I have 
gotten to where I am now and excited to see where I'll be five or six years from now. Cause you're always learning as, as an artist, you're always growing. Right. Well, I'm so glad you found that talent that had been hidden up, up until then. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank and, you. Uh, you have a tremendous talent and you are a doctor by trade. Yeah. And I'm still working as a physician. I'm an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. And um, up until a year ago, I was still working full time and delivering babies and doing the whole thing. And both just because of where I am in my life, but also really because of my art career, I felt like I really wanted to take a little bit of a step backwards. So I'm now working a little less than part-time and fit into three days a week um, in Wolfboro, New Hampshire as a gynecologist, and I'm not delivering babies anymore. And I've never been happier. I have really the perfect balance right now between, I was going to say work and play, but it's work and work. It's just two different kinds of work. You know, I'm very serious about my artwork, even though I came to it later in life. It really is a a passion and has, has become a second career. So, but it's great. I get to do both. Yeah. Well, work that you love should feel like play. There's a a fine line between the two. So let me ask you what, um, what media do you use in your paintings? So I'm an oil painter. I started out with acrylics because that's what my mother had, but acrylics dry a little bit darker. So it's very difficult to like match a color. And that was frustrating to me. And um, so I switched to oil pretty soon after I started painting. And that's what I do now. Have there been certain artists that have inspired you? Yeah, I, I'll share. I mean, there's a lot of artists. I mean, um, Instagram, what a gift, you know, if you think about it before the computer age, people had to go to museums to travel to museums, you know, to see work, to inspire them. And I just have to open up my phone today to see work that rivals, you know, anything done at any time in history by some of the people that I really admire. So there are really many, many people that inspire me, but two in particular, one is Edward Hopper. Um, And it's funny because people, when they think about his work, they think about sort of a lonely feeling to it. And my paintings don't have that feeling, but he painted in a simple kind of way. He didn't always put in a lot of detail and lots of attention to light and shadow. And that's what really excites me. And then over time, I realized that I paint in the places that Hopper painted. Like if you look at his biography, his history, he painted Novel Lighthouse. He painted Portland Head Lighthouse. He painted on Monhegan. He was from Nyack, New York. I'm from Hastings on Hudson, which is just across the river. So we have all these things that have kind of happened, you know, where I've been in his footsteps, quite literally also on Cape Cod. And so I'm trying to actually build a body of work of the places where he painted. So that's um, exciting. And I'd say the other person that I've learned a tremendous amount from is a contemporary artist named Timothy Horn, who again is sort of a light and shadow painter. And, And I studied with him for about a year and he was very helpful in my development. You took the words right out of my mouth about Hopper. I was going to say, you know, as far as any famous artists when, that I think of when I see your work, it's certainly Hopper. And uh, again, the the, uh, the balance of light and shadow and, and all that. It's, yeah, it's thanks. Great. You're welcome. I used to get embarrassed by it because I was thinking that people thought that I was trying to copy him. And it really wasn't. Your, your style mm-hmm. as an artist is almost like your handwriting. It's just what comes off of your brush. Yeah. But now I'm okay with it. <laughs> There's yeah, well, people to be compared to. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't feel like you're copying him at all. It's just that it is reminiscent. You have some of the same uh, sensibilities, I think. But yeah. So what exactly led you to do paintings of lighthouses? 
Well, I married a lighthouse lover. When when my husband and I first um, got married and merged our households, his artwork collection was basically posters of lighthouses. So he um, he's always loved them, and we you know still have a few things that we you know have up on our walls now. And as my painting sort of experience has developed, what I'm really drawn to is is architecture and the coast. And so what a perfect blend of that, you know, that lighthouses become, and especially the keepers houses too, because like so many buildings of those times, you know, a a structure was built and then it was added onto, and then it was added onto. And so, so many of these houses have these interesting shadows, you know, light and shadow patterns of, of one edition shadowing light from, from what it sits next to. And so it's sort of like a, a geometric puzzle in a way, the way those patterns tend to form. So I had painted a few. And then when I was thinking about what to do for my upcoming show, it just occurred to me, like, I, I think I just would like to paint all lighthouses. So, so that's what the show is going to be. I have 26 paintings put together and they're all of lighthouses. Yeah. I want to get back to a few more details about the show, but I, I want to mention you did the official 250th anniversary painting of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, near and dear to me, uh, 10 minutes from my home here. Yeah. Uh, and I love that painting so much. We had a Zoom event where you did, a, I guess, an official unveiling of, of that. And everybody in our uh, organization here, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, just, just loves the painting. That'll Ooh. be on display. Yeah. The gallery is going to display that painting during the, the show. So it's right. obviously it's not for sale, but it's but people can look at it. And there are some um, prints of it that are available. So let's talk about your show a little, little more detail. The show is called Beacon. Yeah. Uh, and there are, as you said, paintings, you said 26 paintings and all. In the 26 show? paintings. Yeah. 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 I think if you, you know, took a hundred people in a room and say, what does a lighthouse mean to you? Number one, probably 98 of those people would have a powerful response to the idea of a lighthouse, but then they'd probably also have 98 different associations or reasons why they were important to them. And so I was sort of exploring that a little bit, you know, that, you know, on the one hand, it's a symbol of strength and a symbol of persistence. And, and, and on the other hand, it, people think about an, a lighthouse as being isolated and maybe lonely. And, and so it's such a complex kind of notion. And so I really did explore that there, you know, all of the paintings are not necessarily all sort of sunny day paintings. And so there's really sort of an exploration of a different mood and a different symbolism with the different paintings that I did. Right. It's funny you say that because I do a lecture, especially this time of year, we're talking here in October and uh, I do a lecture on lighthouse ghost stories and I've got a bunch of them mostly on zoom this month. And I always talk about the positive symbolism of lighthouses, but I also say they have a dark side, you know, that there's something mysterious about seeing that, that lonely light out in the darkness. Yeah. So, Absolutely. I'm totally in touch of, with that. Yeah. And kind of along the same lines, uh, the author Virginia Woolf said, Virginia Woolf said, quote, lighthouses are endlessly suggestive signifiers of both human isolation and our ultimate connectedness to each other. Unquote. Oh, that's fabulous. I thought so, that's too. So that's perfect. why I put it on the front of my website. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of your website, I, I have to publicly give you a shout out because um, I want people to know that when I had this idea, 
Um, and then I had the idea that I would like to donate a portion of the sales back to the um, American Lighthouse Foundation. And so Jeremy and I had a conversation and I, I wanted to include a painting of each of the lighthouses that the American Lighthouse Foundation supports. And you were generous about letting me use some of your beautiful photographs to paint from, because there's no way I would have been able to travel to all 18 and get um, reference images. So I just want to thank you for that. I hope I, I hope I've done the photos justice with the oh, you. that I've done. Some of them are, are just so dramatic and spectacular. Well, so are your paintings and I appreciate you thanking me. Uh, thank you for thanking me very much. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm honored. I'm very honored that you use them as, as models. Oh, and I love uh, seeing the paintings and thinking, uh, you know, remembering my photos that some of them were, were based on. Uh, so uh, the show opens on November 5th. Yes. Yeah, there'll be a reception um, for anybody that's within uh, striking distance of Portsmouth. There'll be a reception at the Kennedy Gallery, which is on Market Street, um, from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And I'll be there and would love to see people there and, um, and greet you. Yeah, well, I hope some of our listeners will get there. It'll uh, be running until November 30th. So there's uh-huh. plenty of opportunity to, um, to see it, but, but there'll be that reception that night. Yeah, so November 5th through November 30th at the Kennedy Gallery in the heart of downtown Portsmouth. So I'm assuming the paintings will be for sale, right? So the paintings will all be on display there um, right. you know, at the gallery and available for sale. I mean, I think sometimes there's a hope to keep the collection intact through the end of the month. And if people are local and can keep it on display during that time, but just reserve it in their name, you know, that's an option. Um, obviously, if someone is traveling and, and needs to have um, the painting sooner, they can take it with them. They vary in size. So the smallest paintings that that are being offered are I have some four by eight inch paintings and um, six by six inch. And the largest painting is the title painting Beacon, which is 36 by 48 inches. So um, there's quite a quite a range. Um, Most of them are sort of a more in between size, 11 by 14, 9 by 12. Everything is framed except for the largest paintings, which can be hung without a frame. Are prints available of all of them? I know they are for Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. No, um, just from the for the Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse painting. Mm-hmm. If someone was very interested in prints, they could talk with me. There might be a way to make that happen. Is there a way for people to see your work online? Absolutely. I, I don't have this collection up yet. I want to sort of put it up as the show is opening. So they won't be able to see these pieces right now. But I do have a website, which is DebbieMuellerArt.com. It's M-U-E-L-L-E-R, um, Debbie Mueller Art. And so you can see a big assortment of my work there. Um, the Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse prints are on my website and available um, either that way or through the gallery um, as well. And there are prints of that particular painting available on uh, beautiful watercolor paper and also on stretch canvas. So depending on what people want, a couple different sizes for, for each of them. So, yeah. But I'd love for people to visit my website and get an idea of sort of my, my style. And then I'll publish the, the show uh, as a collection on the website uh, just mm-hmm. before it opens. Okay, great. Yeah, I was just looking at your uh, your website recently at the gallery of view of a lot of your your paintings on there and there's a couple of lighthouses on there but there's a lot of other uh, largely not all buildings but as you said uh, that's a, a favorite subject of yours so yeah um, I I don't know 
for somebody who started painting late in life, um, my biggest deficit was my drawing ability. And for somebody for whom drawing is challenging and difficult, um, why did I pick architecture? <laughs> because you have to get everything right, all that perspective and angles. And so I don't know why I chose that. You know, nobody ever looked at a landscape painting and said, oh, that tree is just a slightly bit too big. You know, you can, you can fudge that so much easier. Um, yeah. But I just, I like it. I think there's something about the connection between the natural world and the human world, human made world that um, kind of fascinates me. The other genre that I love painting is still life. You know, for somebody who likes to paint from life, um, I do a lot of plein air or outdoor painting. And some of the paintings that I'll be showing were painted on the spot while I looked at the subject. And you get such great information about the true color, but it's very challenging because the light changes all the time. The sun darts in and out, you know, wind comes up, water changes, whether it's reflective or choppy. And, and so it's really hard painting from uh, life for a still life painting though. You're obviously under, you have much more control over your subject. Plus in the winter months, who wants to go outside and paint outside in January in New Hampshire. So um, in January, I do a big project where I paint a different still life painting each day as part of a challenge. Um, and so that's kind of my other, my other love. Well, again, your lighthouse paintings rank certainly with any lighthouse paintings I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. And uh, well, it's the absolute truth and uh, they're wonderful. And I recommend to everybody that they check out this show beacon that's about to open if people are listening if you uh, go to see the the show at the gallery uh please tell them you heard about it on the podcast lighthearted <laughs> yeah. i'd love to see if we get any feedback on that but uh i'm looking forward to seeing it myself definitely gonna go check it out and uh debbie mueller thank you so much for everything you've done for the american lighthouse foundation for friends of portsmouth harbor lighthouses and I wish you all the best with this show. And I thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to the two organizations that you've mentioned for maintaining these structures that are just, you know, so important to us in, in so many different ways. So um, it's really my honor and privilege to be able to hopefully um, make a donation back um, after the show is done. To learn more about Debbie Mueller's art, check out her website at debbiemuellerart.com. I love the painting Debbie Mueller did of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse a few months ago mm-hmm. for the 250th anniversary of the light station. Me too. Yeah, uh, that painting will be part of her show in Portsmouth. It opens uh, November 5th, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of the show uh, as well. Now we're going to listen to part three of our three-part interview with Irish lighthouse keeper Gerald Butler. We've already told everyone quite a bit about Gerald in the last two episodes, but we'll do a a brief recap. Gerald Butler is a third-generation lighthouse keeper on both sides of his family. His career at lighthouses spanned from 1969 to 1990, and it included stays at some of Ireland's most iconic lighthouses, Bull Rock, Fastnet Rock, the Old Head of Kinsale, and Mizzen Head, among others. Gerald was co-author with Patricia Ahern of the book, The Lightkeeper, a memoir, which was published in 2012. Today, Gerald is the attendant keeper at Galley Head Lighthouse, and he frequently lectures on Irish lighthouses. 
In part three of the interview today, Gerald talks about the lighthouses where he worked in the last part of his career, about a commemoration of the famous Fastnet disaster that we discussed in part two of the interview, and about his post-lighthouse keeping career, among other things. Let's listen to part three of my conversation with Gerald Butler now. You also, uh, in your career, spent, uh, I think it was more than two years at the old head of Kinsale uh, Lighthouse and yes. nine nine years at Mizzen Head, right? That was, the I think, the longest of anywhere uh, we were stationed. And maybe maybe we need to have another uh, part to this interview. It's, I'm sure there's a lot you could talk about with those. But what especially stands out for you about those places? After I left Fastnet, and I went to the old head of Kinsale. The old head of Kinsale is quite a tall uh, lighthouse. And I remember one day I was part, part ways down the cliff and the fog came in and I was on duty. And I started running from the uh, well down the cliff all the way up, right up through the lighthouse to start firing the fog signals, the explosive fog signals. And what amazed me when I got to the top is I just wasn't out of breath. Now I'd been running. And the reason is that on Fastnet, every time you go outside the door, you must go down the, down the tower. There are eight flights on Fastnet and 14 steps in each of them. So you have to go down and up and down and up. And it's amazing how you get so used to it. Old Head, yes, it was a land station. It was attached to land. So I was able to go home in my off period. Uh, I got married that year and um, I was able to go home and start building my house. So I built this house now that I'm living in and um, I did the most of the work on the house myself. Fantastic. Moving on uh, to, you you finished your career in, in what year? Uh, in 1990, was it 1990? 21 years at all uh, yeah. at, the, at the lighthouses. The automation of Irish lighthouses was completed in 1997. And you must have some thoughts about the, uh, the automation and de-staffing of lighthouses. Yeah. At the time, uh, we rejected it and rejected it bitterly. Um, it was very, very sad. Um, and it's, it, is, it has to be that with any type of employment when it comes to an end. Suddenly, uh, everything that you've done, it's just no longer required any longer. And that has a, a very negative effect on, on you. It has on me anyway. Um, I was never a person to look back. Yes, historically I would, but I was never a person to look back and to reminisce and to get stuck into the past. When it came for me to leave, I left knowing I was 40 years of age and that I still had enough energy uh, to start something else. So I was taking a new turn in my life, but I wasn't at all prepared for it. That was unfortunate. I would love to have had some preparation for when I get out into the big wild world. And I wound up buying a fishing trawler and I became a fisherman for 10 years. 
as well. And that, the reason that I did that was it kept me connected to the sea, kept me working with the ocean all, all the time. So I bought a trawler for the first two years, every morning when I'd be going out fishing, I used to be absolutely dying with seasick. So when you get up in the morning, you'd know very well, this is going to be an absolutely miserable. When I'd go out fishing then, and when I shoot my trawl, and once the trawl would settle on the bottom, the trawl steadied the trawler up. So now I was um, I was fine then after that. I'd put on my breakfast and I'd work away fishing for the day. Come home at night. The, the hardest part, one of the hardest parts about it was trying to get sleep. I found that there was no day under 18 hours. Absolutely not one day less than 18 hours. So you come home, uh, whatever time you come in home, you weren't even able to sit and talk to your family. Um, and a lot of that came from poor organisation. Uh, I stuck that for 10 years. And um, I bought two trawlers in succession to each other. The second one was a bit bigger, much better sea boat. And I used to go away and spend a week away in the boat fishing. I used to go to that place I was talking about, the Labadee Bank. And I used to trawl on top of that. I'd head off there on Sunday afternoon and I wouldn't come back until Friday night. So it was a long, a long trip, you know. And... Financially, I did not do well at it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've only finished paying for the privilege of it there last year, the year before. So, but I did love it. There was what, it's insane to love something that's so difficult, but I did. I, the work, the physical work on it was unbelievably strenuous. And um, but the navigating and the uh, managing of the trawler was absolutely satisfying in every sense. I did. I loved every part of it, except the trying to get some sleep. And then trying to stay awake was another hard part of it. Because when you're up that long, and um, uh, when I'd be coming in uh, after a, a week's fishing, and I remember at one stage, I gave a week out fishing on my own. I had no crew member. And when you'd be coming, when I was coming in, I had to stay out on the deck. I could not sit at the wheel and drive the trawler home. It was a 50-foot trawler, big lump of a boat, but I could not sit. If I did, I was just going to fall asleep. I remember I was coming in and there was a group of other trawlers in the area with me. And my boat was faster than the rest of them. But they'd shout on the radio, what was I doing? I'd be yawing all over the place and shooting across in front of them. And so I had to slow back and let them all pass me out and let it be the last boat coming in. I was so tired. So, yeah, it, 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 there was no regularity about it at all. You did it kind of the opposite way of uh, way a lot of American lighthouse keepers used to do. A lot of them, of course, were formerly fishermen or sea captains, and they would uh, kind of opt for... Uh, in some ways, a safer life being a lighthouse keeper, uh, you know, and, and somewhat less strenuous. Not that being a lighthouse keeper was easy, believe me, I don't think that. But, uh, yeah. you know, you sort of you sort of reverse that. that uh, I did. I reversed the roles because I was born 
to be a lightkeeper. Right. And I regretted tremendously the automation program because it took away a way of life. It ended a way of life. At the time, you see, nobody cared about heritage. Nobody cared about history. Nobody cared about any kind of preservation. Um, like anything could be ripped out of a lighthouse and discarded and modern stuff put in. Nobody would stop and say the Fresnel lens or the Fresnel lens, they're there for uh, the last 100, 120 years. So th that didn't exist at that time. That was yeah, unfortunate. I'm lucky enough then that after my mother retired, my mother had been uh, an attendant like keeper at the galley head after my father. My father died there and then my mother uh, stepped into the breach and she became the attendant lightkeeper. So after her retirement, I applied to the Irish Lights for that position. And luckily enough, uh, they granted me that. And after I retire, there won't be any other um, lightkeepers. You've been the attendant uh, keeper at Galley Head for, I believe, about 24 years now. Is, Is that, that long? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 97. That's, yeah. So can you, for people who don't know, and we don't, that's another term we don't use in this country, attendant lightkeeper, what does that entail? Well, I always describe it as part-time wages with a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, everything is automatic. So what I'm doing now is I keep the place nice and clean. If uh, anything fails, I'll be able to go in and repair it. Uh, if I can't, I will call a technician. Uh, I also have the charge of it. So the charge of it, is, I'm not sure in America, but here in Ireland, it's um, quite serious now with health and safety risks. So if there's, if I want to do anything, want to do an open day for the public, I have to get uh, an organization in to do it so that I will have enough bodies to help me and we will have to do a risk assessment to satisfy insurance and um, it's it's quite difficult now to do anything but uh, we're managing we get through stuff and um, uh, I absolutely love the work I do now and so much so that I would uh, I often say nearly pay to do it just just not even two weeks ago Maria, my partner, and I, the two of us got onto the Irish lights and we pleaded with them to give us paint, white masonry paint, to paint the walls as you approach the lighthouse. You're approaching the lighthouse from the landward side, so there isn't a navigational um, a day mark need for painting these. So I asked the Irish Lights, would they let me do it? I'll do it free of charge if you will supply the paint. So they agreed. They supplied some of the paint and I had more of it and I supplied it and painted it free of charge. And now I'm going to keep it painted that I have it done because it makes the station look quite pleasant as you're coming towards. It makes it look very pretty. And um, with the amount of filming that's happening, uh, we just had a local girl here and she did a documentary called The Last Lightkeeper. And it, she entered it into the 
International Film Festival in New York and ultimately came in the top three. So it's when you're, that kind of filming is going on. I love to have the place. I love to have it looking 100% beautiful. So, yeah. You give tours there? I do give tours, but they have to be by arrangement because, you see, I'm living about five miles away from the lighthouse. I have other business that I do as well. So I have to fit everything in. So you're kept very, very busy doing everything. Uh, another thing you've done in recent years is you went, uh, you've, you referred to this earlier, I think, you uh, got a master's degree in local history from University College Cork. Uh, yes. I think not, not that many years ago, right? No. What made you decide to do that? That's a very good question. What made me decide to do it is I have a very good friend who did it, and he talked me into it. But I had known that this was going on, and... I told you there earlier that I give lectures uh, and I've been giving lectures to the historical societies and to schools and I would bring children to the lighthouse and I would bring um, the historical societies. Anyone I give a lecture to, I would always invite them to come and I bring them up in and show them around the light. And I never charge for that. I do all that um, FOC. But I wrote the book or Patricia wrote the book really and then my involvement with the historical societies was good enough, plus my life's experience was good enough to qualify me uh, to be accepted by the university in Cork. And this good friend of mine, he had just uh, completed his course and he had just gained his MA. And he said to me, I should do it. And I said to him, oh, Dominic, I don't know. I said, I'm not. I don't think I'm even academically at the races. And he said, strangely enough, he said, you are. He said, you have all the requirements that they need. He said, if you write in and submit what you have and apply for it, uh, he said, you should get it. So I did. I wrote in and I don't think they believed what I had written in. So they wrote back to me and said to send, send in supplementing evidence. So I got on to some of the historical societies and asked them if they would and they were quite willing to oblige and I was accepted onto the course then it's a two-year course and it was extremely doable the the way the course ran from half six until half eight every Wednesday evening you would attend a lecture now that's very doable it's after tea in the evening you could be doing your work during the day come home have your food head off up to the university and um, you were finished at half eight, come home and you'd be writing up your, your lectures and what it meant to you. And then at the end of the first year, I had to write a 5,000 word essay on a subject not related to my thesis. And that was difficult. Uh, I had to research that. So I selected the local castle here uh, of my grounds here where I am living was part of the estate and I selected to write about that and the title was the institutional buildings in Ratbury. really there weren't that many so I had to change a lot of the titles on buildings I'd say they were <laughs> just to get my 5,000 word essay written I found that extremely difficult so with that done and once I had it passed I was then left to my own devices then to write the thesis in the following year. So 
So I had the entire year to do it. And that to me was a labor of love. I really, really enjoyed it. I wish my thesis could have gone on for 130 words, 30,000 words. Uh, it was just 30,000. And I was writing about 11 lighthouse stations, pretty much the ones we were talking about there now. And um, when I got through all of that, um, I really felt I wasn't doing the subject justice at all. But um, anyway, I submitted it and lo and behold, um, I was awarded my, my MA. So mm -hmm. having an MA, for me, it's just um, a qualification in what I was doing. I'm not going to use it to gain any work or anything. I'm, I'm 71 now. So I'm not going to go looking for work on the strength of that. But um, I love doing, I love giving the lectures. I, I'll actually be giving one now in October to the World Ship Society in Cove. And um, it'll be a Zoom talk. And, um, but I love doing all of that. And um, I think my orientation is people anyway. Let me just ask you, how did the so how did the book come about? And uh, I'm curious about Patricia Hearn, who wrote it with you, uh, how, yes. how that all happened. Well, I do believe there's a God above, because if I had have written that book, it would have just gone. Um, the amount of people, after I would deliver a lecture, the amount of people that would come up to me and they would say to me, Jerry, you should write a book. And I used to say to them, forget it. The books are already written. I have 30 of them at home on my bookshelf, and this had just been nothing different. And I remember leading into it, there was a woman rang me, and she said, would I write a book? And I said, no. So she said, well, if you won't write a book, she said, would you make a DVD? And I said, okay. I said, I'll make a DVD. I said, I don't think that has been done. So she left it with me, and I was trying to figure out how I could go about making a DVD. And in the meantime, this other lady, Patricia Ahern, she lives near Cork and she rang the Irish Lights. She, she had written about search and rescue dogs. So um, she wanted to write about a lightkeeper. So the Irish Lights knew I used to do these lectures. So they said to her, look, there's a fellow there in Cork called Jerry. You should give him a ring and see where you get along with them. So they had my permission to pass on my phone number. And when she called to the house to me, I did everything in my power to talk her out of doing it. And for the very same reason, I really was being genuinely honest. I felt that we were all too late. So she said to me, remember sitting in the kitchen in the, down on the couch, and she looked up at me and she said to me, I'm going to do this anyway. And I think, looking back on it, that's what I wanted to hear, even though I was unaware of that at the time, that determination. It uh, motivated me there and then. And I knew when she said it to me, she was going to do it. And I also knew that I had a good deal of information that I'd be of great help to her. So I never saw the book as my own. So I said, fair enough. I said, I'll commit and I'll help you to do this. And um, so she... I asked her then, I said, did you figure out a title for the book? And she said, yes. She said, I was going to call the book The Lightkeeper. But she said, you can change it if you want. And gosh, when she said that to me, 
she knocked me off my seat because everything I have, every book I've read about it, it's all about the uh, the history of the need for building and the shipwrecks, uh, the structure, the type of building that was used, the technology that went through the lighthouse, the Fresnel lenses, everything. But never did I come across a book written by a lightkeeper, what it was like to grow up and live in these places. Remember, and of course, my own lifestyle, something I didn't cover with you was extremely adventurous because I quite literally did the most, I did the craziest things you can imagine. So I said, it'll be great fun doing it. And when we started doing it, she just said to me, you know, Gerald, she said, your book is taking on a theme. And uh, she said, do you know what it is? And I said, adventure. She said, no. And I said, what? So she said, risk. <laughs> uh-huh. That's good fun in the, in the book, the risk you did. And I remember talking to another historian, a, a doctor up in Dublin. And I said to him, because of what I had done on Skellig Michael, and I said to him, I suppose trying to um, come up with the idea there was some, somebody else in the world just like me. So I said to him, the monks, when they were living out on Skellig Michael, sure, they must have done the same thing too. And I was fully expecting him to say no. And he said, yes, they did. They did all this climbings and uh, whatever, you know. So that was how the book came about. Patricia would call then every Tuesday and I would uh, relate the story to her like I'm doing with you. And Patricia was uh, handwriting down what I was saying. And then uh, she w- she'd go home, she'd type it up, and she'd put it in her own words. And I really believe that that's the success of the book because it's a masculine story written by a feminine hand. So when the two of those are, are put together, it makes the book... Uh, suitable for uh, men, women, or children. It it make it broadens the the versatility of the book. I think. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because just the other night I said to my wife, you know, you really should read this book. You'd enjoy it. She reads a lot, and I, I know she likes reading uh, autobiographies and that sort of thing. So I know. Uh, I hope she'll read it and I know she'll enjoy it. You know, there are other books that have been written by lighthouse keepers, but it is pretty rare. There's more books written by uh, children of lighthouse keepers, you know, um, descendants of lighthouse keepers. Uh, the Lighthouse Keeper's Wife by uh, the late Connie Small is a great one. My friend uh, Chris Mills in Canada wrote a book called Vanishing Lights that's largely about his own experience as a keeper on both coasts of Canada. And he's a, he's a wonderful writer. You might like that one, Vanishing Lights. Yes, but indeed. as far as an extensive uh, look at a, a fairly uh, lengthy career as a, a light keeper, I don't know of any other book uh, that's quite like yours. And it is, uh, it is absolutely beautifully written. And I want to recommend it to my listeners. And people listening to this might think, well, I've heard him tell all these stories now. I don't have to read the book. But there's a lot more on the book and, uh, you know, just uh, so many great stories. I actually had to cut out some of the questions I wanted to ask you. So maybe we need to do a, another part to this uh, interview. But we're coming into the home stretcher. I just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, first of all, I was thinking about how in the last couple of years, all of us, all over the world, really, have uh, been dealing with kind of forced isolation with the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and a lot of people have had problems with that isolation. 
Uh, and now people are kind of, I think some people are having problems uh, ending that isolation. But I'm wondering if your background as a lighthouse keeper, if you feel that it taught you kind of any special skills in dealing with, with that type of thing, with isolation. That's a fabulous question. And strangely enough, a few uh, radio programs have contacted me for the very same reason uh, at the beginning of uh, the lockdowns we've had. And um, it, you're absolutely right. It did. It made uh, being here in the house at home. There's two things about that. One was my past experience of living in places like Fastnet and Skelligs and that. Um, it was absolutely no different whatsoever. And the other one was I'm living in the countryside and the view out the window is absolutely beautiful. So I used to say to people, you know, if I went to the Mediterranean on a holiday, I'd be inside my house looking out at the ocean and there would only be Maria and myself able to talk to each other because we wouldn't understand the various languages. So uh, it's the same thing. We were here, we were on our own, and we were looking out over the beautiful countryside. And it's kind of, I, I described it as um, being sinfully un unfair in that I was having a blissful time during lockdown while people were uh, going through total misery, plus uh, having relatives that were losing their lives. So I didn't home in on that too much, but I, I feel so much for people in built up areas, people in flats, people in uh, where you have children above you and below you and trying to control them. It must have been a, an absolute nightmare. The, the, the tips that I did give were create a routine get a routine going because it's such a good help. We human beings operate with routine extremely well. And um, to create a routine is very good. Also, I uh, stressed, uh, get a book. Just get your hands on a book and read it. If you're in lockdown, books will last you no length. When I was in the Irish Lights and out on the rocks, I used to, I was a profuse reader. And I remember the way I describe it is when you open a book, you actually step into a different world. So read, read, read. And even if you're not in lockdown, read anyway, because if it'll do nothing else, it will broaden your vocabulary and it'll give you great insights into other things. Yeah. All sounds like good advice to me. So I have one last question for you, and it's it's sort of a two-part question. This is for bonus points, okay? Uh, the the uh, two parts of the question are, one, what did you learn about life being a lighthouse keeper? And uh, secondly, what did you enjoy most about being a lighthouse keeper? The most, I'll answer the second part first. Um, what I enjoyed most about being a lighthouse keeper was um, the time that it afforded. That's the one thing I missed whenever I went out into the big bad world. Um, I missed time. Oh, I jumped up and it hit me right across the face, having to meet deadlines. So when, you, when I went out fishing, uh, I had to catch fish to make money. So everything had to work and everything had to be this and had to be that. Uh, my skills as a light that I had 
during the light, lighthouse keeping period served me phenomenally well afterwards. But um, that's the big thing I missed. That was the big, that was the big tragedy for me because um, when I wanted to do something, I would take my time and I would enjoy doing it. There was no rush, there was no pressure of any sort. The first part of your question was, uh, what did I learn as a lighthouse keeper? I learned how to live with people, even though I was with two people for most of my, for all of it really, if we were out on a rock, you were with two other light keepers. So you were living in very close proximity to each other. So what I found was I was very uh, quickly able to get inside their heads. So you, you could say a bit of psychology, if you like. I was able to um, predict things they'd say. And I, I quite literally did that by um, experiment. Part of the experiment was playing cards with a fellow uh, to see the way he would operate. So I would uh, say certain things uh, just to, not for the answer, but just to experience the result. And with that, I was able to uh, figure out the way this person did his thinking. And a good example of that is I worked particularly with one extremely good artist, a painting. Well, he was an artist in every, every respect. And I worked with another man. I wouldn't class him to be at the same level, but nonetheless, he was still an artist. And I remember uh, when I was with these people and uh, in sitting there in the kitchen when we'd be having our supper or whatever, and I would put a subject to them. You know, the usual religion, politics, business, uh, relationships, whatever, it didn't matter. The only reason you'd be doing it is to just um, make it a bit of an icebreaker to talk to them. And then I would uh, come up with a problem and present that and say to them, look at, well, what would you do now if such a thing happened and etc." And the approach that the artist would give was so unbelievably different to what the ordinary conventional person. So I considered myself to be the ordinary conventional person, but the artist would look at a situation, they would circumnavigate it before they would find a way of going at it. Nothing is right or wrong, but that's their way of doing it. So I've often um, launched art shows and I've, uh, and this is part of what I say about the, the, the mind of an artist. It's most intriguing and we should preserve them really, you know? But yeah, that's what I learned from us. Um, uh, you have time to get into another person's head without them knowing you're there. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. I never really looked at it that much that way, but uh, you know, uh, Jerry Butler, may I call you Jerry? Is that? Yes, you may. Okay. All right. Thank you. Jerry Butler, it's uh, just such a pleasure spending this time with you today. I can't tell you how, how interesting it is to me. You're, you're, I loved your book and uh, hearing the stories firsthand from you is, is special. And I also want to mention next year, uh, July 2022, I'll be traveling to Ireland with the U.S. Lighthouse Society on a, I believe it's 23-day tour. I hope maybe we can meet uh, when I visit there next year. That would be great. Uh, maybe we'll come to Galleyhead Lighthouse. I'm not quite sure if that's on the itinerary, but I think it might be. I'll have to check on oh, that. Oh, I'd love it. I would absolutely <laughs> love it. 
That would be amazing. And I think there's a good chance of that. So I will definitely be in touch with you about that. But again, uh, I appreciate your time so much. This is uh, a a privilege, you know, Um, it's just great doing this podcast where I get to talk to people all over the world about lighthouses who are involved in all kinds of ways. But uh, this is uh, absolutely the top of my my list uh, talking with you today. So uh, I hope we can do it again. And thank you so much, Jerry. Been a pleasure. To learn more about Gerald Butler and to buy his book, visit his website at thelightkeeper.ie. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed most about this podcast is getting the chance to interview lighthouse keepers from Jim Pope to Chris Mills to Sally Snowman, uh, Karen Zacharick, uh, and all the others. We can learn so much from the perseverance and dedication of these people and uh, also from their observations of the world from uh, such a unique perspective. If anyone is listening who has worked as a lighthouse keeper or is a child of a lighthouse keeper, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Here's an old Irish blessing. May you always walk in sunshine. May you never want for more. May Irish angels rest their wings right beside your door. Thanks again to Jerry Butler and to Debbie Mueller. The next episode of Lighthearted will be available in a few days on October 31st, and it will feature a chat with Ron Kolick, paranormal investigator and lighthouse preservationist. Uh, You and I know Ron well, Cindy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've held many nighttime tours with him at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Yes, we have. That should be a good one for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, Ron and I, as you know, Cindy, have done a number of lighthouse investigations, overnight paranormal investigations mm-hmm. together. And uh, it was kind of fun reminiscing and going over. Uh, pretty much all of them had interesting things happen. And we, we discussed that uh, in this interview. So it was a lot of fun. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, yeah. A little, <laughs> a little on the spooky side for sure. Mm. So as always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine